ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. Greetings, I'm Tom Gilson. Today on ID the Future, we return to a remarkable conversation hosted by Hank Hanegraaff on his Hank Unplugged podcast, speaking with Neil Thomas, author of Taking Leave of Darwin, A Longtime Agnostic Discovers the Case for Intelligent Design. This is the second of three parts we're bringing you. The first voice you'll hear is Hanegraaff's. I want to talk about the fossil record, something that you address in the book. Carl Linnaeus, who is the father of biological taxonomy, he made a point in the 18th century that species do not change and that all living things were created as they can be observed today. Yes. So the fossil record, according to Carl Linnaeus, says no to the Darwinian superstructure. It is in direct contrast with what Darwin said. And as you look farther into the fossil record, you see that the fossil record has been an embarrassment to Darwin. Darwin had an excuse, Mm -hmm. I've often said, but people like Dawkins do not. The fossil record is an embarrassment to Darwinian evolution. Yes, It was very much an embarrassment to Darwin. He actually adverts to it very directly in his Origin of Species when he says that one would expect that nature would be in an uproar, that we would have a process of gradual hybridization with gradations between species, and that this would be reflected in the fossil record. Well, of course, the fossil record does not reflect that at all. It is most undarwinian. I mean, after the so-called Cambrian explosion 540 million years ago, you have a sudden appearance of fully formed species. And this is very difficult to account for, which is why Stephen Jay Gould and Eldridge came out with their alternative theory of punctuated equilibrium, as you'll know very well, that perhaps evolution was not as gradual as Darwin would like it to have been. But he was aware of it. But the strange thing is that he's very open-hearted about it. He brings this into his book. And I sometimes wonder whether this is the reason that people have forgiven him this inconsistency, because he was so transparent and so honest that they've given him a pass on that, which is rather silly because, you know, to give somebody a pass on something of such importance, it's not a matter of sportsmanship. It's a matter of truth, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, and I think what's really important, and you've alluded to Richard Dawkins, but here you have Darwin's best-known modern expositor, Mm. who is, from my perspective, and I think from yours as well, essentially deceitful and illogical. He is a person who knows about molecular biology, Mm. which shows that the humblest bacterium contains more genetic information than the instruction manual for NASA space probes. So he's aware of things that Darwin was not aware of. Yes. And yet he continues to hoodwink people. Yes. I mean, the point is, I don't know whether he's hoodwinking other people as much as he's hoodwinking himself, to be (laughs) honest. I think he is doctrinaire, I think he is a zealot, but I would hesitate to accuse him of dishonesty in that precise sense, because I think that he is so over-invested in the idea that 
he is not trying to fool other people so much as he's trying to fool himself. I mean, one of the things that he said in either the blind watchmaker, I think it was the blind watchmaker rather than climbing Mount Improbable, was that this whole business about so-called abiogenesis, the emergence of life from chemical combinations and reactions, that he he said, well, we haven't managed to do this yet. There are all sorts of other ions in the fire, like thermal vents and so on, where we're hoping that some clues might come. And then he says, rather piteously at the end, we haven't had such a result so far, but perhaps we will in the future. Well, this kind of promissory note on what might happen in the future, it sounds a bit pathetic to me. And it sounds to me like somebody who is so desperate to have his version of things represented in the historical record that he can't actually see behind it or beyond it to give a sense of perspective. And I'm surprised, as you are, that people especially since the invention of the electron microscope in the mid-1940s and its implementation. I mean, the idea of the various micro-universes that have come into being that Darwin couldn't have known about, but which we know about full well, and you would think, yes, people would factor that into their analyses. But the old guard apparently do not. And it's a matter of regret, but there's... <laughs> Nothing that you or I can do about it, presumably. <laughs> yeah, you know, to be an evolutionist today, you have to believe that nothing creates everything, that life comes from non-life, and that the life that comes from non-life created metaphysical realities. And yet, as Louis Pasteur made plain, only life can produce life. And yes. I bring this up in the context of the 1953 Miller-Urey experiment, which Time magazine breathlessly touted as a major breakthrough. So now, for the first time, we have evidence that non-life can produce life. Talk about the misinformation with respect to that experiment. Yes, it was done by two reputable scientists in the University of Chicago, as you know. And it was really an attempt to defy what I would call the triple lock, which had been put on the idea of life coming from non-life, which came not only from Pasteur in the 19th century, but from the British scientist William Harvey, who discovered the circulation of blood back in the 17th century, and also by the Italian Francesco Redi, which is why I called it a triple lock. All of them found that experiments to try and indicate that life could, I don't know, emerge from salt linen or whatever, were absolute nonsense. This could not happen. And I think, really, it's a very strange one. It's one of these false scientific ideas that's put into a kind of cryogenic freezing, or it's put on a kind of life support mechanism, intellectually speaking. And what happened, I think, in the 20th century, which became essentially for many people a non-Christian century, was that Haldane and Oparin, British and Russian scientists, had said in the 1920s that, that well, perhaps we could see whether this works, you know, after all. And I think what happened was that the idea didn't die out completely because there was a really bizarre experiment in 1947 in the University of California, carried out by one Robert Cornish, 
to try and resuscitate an executed criminal. And he would have gone ahead with that had not the university authorities rather sensibly stood in to stop him. Anyway, all this was the prelude, I think, to the Miller-Urey experiment of 1953, which again tried to flout all respectable and not just empirically proven scientific findings about whether life could come from non-life. It was an heroic experiment. It didn't work. People wanted it to work. They willed it to work so hard that some people like Carl Sagan said, rather hopefully, that it had worked in a manner of speaking. Well, it didn't really. And one of the things that I noticed is that some time ago, almost half a century ago, when one has to say no, the film came out, a Mel Brooks film, a comedy called Young Frankenstein, which is all about you know, the original Mary Frankenstein thing and about whether you can bring back a, a preacher to life or, and by implication, whether you can create life and so on. And you may know the film, others may know the film. It's very entertaining. There's a lot of goonery in it, a lot of nonsense in it. But at the end of the day, when Mel Brooks was interviewed for a biography in 2019, he said there was a serious purpose in this, and that was to satirize the idea that life could come from non-life. He felt that this was illegitimately trying to play God, or words to that effect is what he said to the journalist who was interviewing him in 2019. So I think it's a very strange one. People will have beliefs that are not borne out by the evidence, but which they still hold on to, because I think it promises a kind of materialistic explanation for reality, which unfortunately for them is not there. Yeah, it's not there. And so there is this grasping at straws, one of the Examples of that would be panspermia. This has become a very popular explanation (laughs) for the origin of life on Earth. Mm -hmm. Talk about panspermia. A lot of people may not know the term. No. But this is something that has become increasingly popular in our era, both from the perspective of directed panspermia and, you know, the notion that this just wafted in our direction as a result of meteors. Yes. Again, this is a very strange one. I would again say, perhaps rather, um, I hope I'm not being too insulting when I say it, but I think it is one of these ideas that's kept alive artificially as a sort of cryogenic experiment in a way, because what happened was that even going back to 1903, when the idea in the modern era was put forward of panspermia, of the, what, what it means is that life, people having given up the idea of trying to look for some chemical abiogenesis on Earth, uh, have said, oh, well, maybe life appeared from outer space. And so what happened was that the idea was, and it's a purely theoretical one, it's a bit like the multiverse, it only exists in people's imagination, and that is that life could have been so seeded from outer space as a result of the equivalent of convection currents, you know, this sort of life could have been crusted in a boulder or something as a meteorite, and then somehow found itself here on Earth. So the person who had a very strange relationship with the idea of panspermia was the legendary British cosmologist, Sir Fred Hoyle, 
who himself is on record as having said there's nothing so stupid in science as the idea that a random coming together of chemicals could produce the first cells of life here on Earth. But apparently he did not, <laughs> he did not wish to risk his scientific good name by implying that there was some kind of God explanation for things. And so he succumbed to the temptations of putting forward panspermia as an idea of his own. He actually lent his prestigious name to this rather lunatic, it seems to me, idea. And it goes to show, I think, that when we're in the dark about things, we can reach out, as you say, for the most strange straws to cling on to. Yeah, absolutely. And I was thinking also about how you have been able to sift through all of this, and you have a chapter in your book on the challenge of intelligent design. And mm -hmm. so many people today are saying that the intelligent design theorists, many of whom are my friends, that they're smuggling religion into the picture under the banner of scientific credibility. And nothing could be farther from the truth. There's an epigraph in your book that says, if the world's finest minds can unravel only with difficulty the deeper workings of nature, how could it be supposed that those workings are merely a mindless accident, a product mm. of blind chance? That's said by theoretical physicist Paul Davies. So yes. the point I want to drive at here is that in very many cases, the working of nature cannot be unraveled, and Darwin and later biologists have tended to paper over the cracks of their own knowledge, as opposed to taking seriously the possibility of intelligent design. And I bring this up in this capacity because I felt that your book was quite honest in this regard, that you opened up the doorway to intelligent design being not something that is speculative, but something that is warranted by the evidence. Yes, I do think that. I mean, what I said in the book was really, since the evidence can be a bit elusive and ambiguous in many cases, I said that, you know, the old idea of nescience, which was a word used in the early modern period of English, but for mean we do not know, and it didn't mean ignorance, just meant we do not know, was one possible way of going. But one has to admit that at the end of the day, if you're looking at the empirical evidence, and this is what a number of scientists have brought out far better than I could, then I think that the indices concerning complexity really trump the idea of nescience. I think there must be some kind of actuating force and in, indeed intelligence behind such things. I am not in a position to say what that intelligence might be any more than the great theologian Thomas Aquinas was in the early 13th century, or than the English mystics, the English mystic who wrote The Cloud of Unknowing, which sort of brought onto the agenda the kind of negative or apophatic theology by which you can derive a notion of 
a superior power, but you cannot necessarily fill in the gaps or say of what precise nature that superior power is. I think this is an open question, logically speaking, but again, logically speaking, I think there's a case for saying that such an entity must exist. I think if you had a good, long conversation with your wife, as Darwin probably should have had with Emma, maybe some of these mysteries can be cleared up. Just joking. <laughs> but <Maybe. in> it, <laughs> You know, you got to listen to your wife, right? <laughs> you know, I want to bring up a few things in this regard. I mean, when we're talking about intelligent design, and you bring them up in the book, language. The yeah. kind of obfuscation that people in the scientific community made with respect to language, I think, is unworthy of their prowess academically. How mm -hmm. can you explain away the complex linguistic capacities and say that these complex linguistic capacities evolved from ape-like communication? I mean, that's one of the most amazing things that is still communicated in the academy, and we should certainly know better at this stage of human history. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think this again is a very strange and problematical facet. As early as the 1860s themselves, just after Darwin's writings began to be known, there was a then renowned Oxford professor of Indo European philology called Friedrich Max Muller, who said that he felt that human communication, since it is not dependent on simple onomatic peer grunts, that is, which suggests mood, not any more advanced intellectual content, that is, you could not extrapolate from that the kind of hyper-sophisticated language that you and I are using now could possibly derive from an ape-like ancestor. I mean, Darwin himself, in The Descent of Man, says that, oh, well, maybe some ape ended up, he doesn't say how, with a superior brain and that this was passed on. Well, you know, this is pure conjecture and there is absolutely no line of causation between the kind of linguistic capacities that you and I have and what our ape-like cousins, as they say, have. Also, this is a point that actually was brought up more recently by the renowned linguist Noam Chomsky, when he said, I don't know whether he was taking issue with Darwinism as such, but he, he implied, or he said, or stated, that human communication was a very complex kind, and that it was might indeed be inborn in the human infant, so that, for instance, you can talk in English or Chinese or whatever language, but the ability to do so is somehow inborn. Therefore, how did it become inborn if it isn't inborn in our simian cousins? The line of transmission from simian to human is huge. Darwin would call it a saltation, a huge leap, a leap of faith to think that any simian grunts and groans could ever have formed the basis of the human language. Yeah, I mean, we were hardwired for grammar from birth. And that's hard to explain through the evolutionary process, as is the sophistication of the human brain, which I thought you did a terrific job of explicating in your book. 
<laughs> I think it was Michael Denton who did the explicating. I gave a very lengthy quote from him, which I think was marvellous. I don't see how anybody can counter it, to be honest. It was so marvellous. <laughs> yeah, I think what is written in your book in this regard, when you think about the awe-inducing complexity of the human oh, brain, yes. no kind of hyperbole can do it justice. And I've tried to explain this in various venues, but... I, again, think that, yeah, with the quotes that you have and so forth, but you're pulling it all together. You've done a marvelous job in your book. You've made a great contribution by the way you banded it all together so that people can see just how impossible it is to suppose that natural selection and common descent can in some way account for the sophistication of the human brain. You also, I think, have done a great job and a great service of demonstrating substance dualism, that the mind and the brain are separate entities. I mean, how do you explain what people can explain today, how the mind can cause the physical synapses of the brain to fire in the first place? Mm, mm. That is a mystery, yes. It mm. is a mystery, and it is a mm. mystery that I think evolutionists ought to take seriously. I mean, a lot of people are physicalists, and they say the physical facts fix all the facts, but I don't think you can say that in an no, age of scientific no, enlightenment. No, I don't think you can. A book I've been reading recently by a neurologist called Donald Hoffman, one F, two Ns, Donald Hoffman, it's something called Darwinism and the denial of reality or something like that. I've got it here somewhere. And Hoffman, he worked together with Francis Crick, who was the, as you know, the co-discoverer of DNA. And this could only have been in the latter decades of the 20th century because Crick is not alive any longer. And Crick said more or less, oh, well, uh, he was rather a sort of buccaneering sort, as I understand it. I, well, I've cracked DNA. Now I'm going to crack the brain and consciousness. And, of course, he didn't get anywhere near doing so, because, to use the word you've used, the physicalist conception of what the brain consists in does not really hit the mark when you're talking about these ultra-subtle responses that human beings have. In fact, Hoffman quotes somebody else who said that if you look at the physical aspects of the brain, to say that you can somehow deduce from that or postulate from that the whole panoply of human thought and emotion is like saying you can derive numbers from biscuits or ethics from rhubarb. You know, the two are incommensurable. There's a whole dimension that we don't know of in the brain, just as about 96% of the outer cosmos represents dark energy and dark matter. So I would say more than 96% of the brain is totally inscrutable to us. Yes, that's absolutely right. You know, something that you bring out in the book that I think would be worth elaborating on is Alfred Russell Wallace, who was a contemporary of Darwin. Yes, in yes. In fact, he might have beat Darwin to the punch with publication, but didn't. Mm -hmm. He had a conversion experience from naturalism to intelligent design, much like you have had. Mm -hmm. But this was based on the idea that not only humanity, but the entire cosmos had been intelligently crafted. 
you discuss in the book what ignited that change. So you have Wallace parting company with Darwin on the subject of the human mind. He cited his inability to comprehend how unconscious processes should be able to produce consciousness. So Mm -hmm. he was, as I was talking about before, he was convinced that the mind and the body were really distinct and discrete entities. And so he had a conversion experience as well. He went in one direction, Darwin continued in the other direction, although, as you have pointed out, he was very confused and confabulated in his Mm. own writing about this. Yes, yes. I mean, I have, uh, further to writing the book, I have considered Wallace, I've had some more thoughts and more research to do about Wallace. He was a totally different kettle of fish. I mean, you've got to remember with Wallace, he did not have a background such as Darwin had. I mean, I'm talking about Darwin's grandfather, Erasmus Darwin, who was the foremost person to put forward the idea of evolution in England. And Darwin, I feel, all the more so because he didn't always give credit to his grandfather as much as he should have, felt himself somehow in a sort of family competition that he had to find the answer to this $64,000 question as to how evolution could occur. And once he felt or he fancied that he'd found it, he had to cling to it like for grim death. Now, Wallace was a totally different sort of person. He was simply an intelligent young man without any great means. He came of a rather impoverished family, a sort of impoverished genteel kind of background in a way. And he had a tremendous interest in life in the greater sense. I mean, for instance, I mean, when Darwin bowed out of public affairs in around about 1870, he devoted himself to this rather safe exploration of barnacles. Well, Wallace, of course, became a public intellectual. He made some really distinctive contributions to cosmology. And in a way, What had happened in his earlier life was a previous chapter, and he did not feel the same sense of family territory to be defended at whatever cost, because his grandfather had not been distinguished evolutionist and so on. So he was, I think, more open-minded. And I think also, when you say he had a conversion experience, I would say that that Conversion experience came rather slowly because at one time he indulged in a kind of dualism, didn't he? He said that the body could be the result of natural selection, but the mind certainly couldn't be. And, you know, he was arraigned at the time for so-called dualism, for, you know, this stark distinction between the mind and the body. And it was only later in life, and remember he lived from 1913, right out of his era in a way, it was only latterly that he was prepared to concede that the whole of the created order must have had a creator in that sense. You know, one of the things I want to talk about as well in this podcast is the ramifications of social Darwinism. Three particular categories, racism, sexism, and eugenics. The racism of Darwin's theory uh, pretty pronounced. In The Descent of Man, for example, he speculated that at some future period not very distant as measured by centuries, the civilized races of man will almost certainly exterminate and replace the savage races Mm. throughout the world. 
And yes, he wasn't advocating it. He was just saying that it was a fait accompli, that it was something natural, wasn't he? I understand. Yeah, although in many senses, I mean, this whole idea of racism was advocated if you look at the history of evolution, it was advocated many venues, and I can talk about that in a few minutes, but I want to leave that for just a moment and just augment what I said about racism with sexism. Mm -hmm. Darwin was very clearly a sexist. He viewed women as essentially less perfectly evolved versions of men. Yes. He famously said that the chief distinction in the intellectual powers of the two sexes is shown by men attaining to a higher eminence in whatever a man takes up than can a woman, and that the mm -hmm. average of mental power in man must be above that of women. And then with respect to eugenics, Darwin's subjective spin, I think, led to that nightmare. The idea that the gene pool was being corrupted by the less fit genes of inferior people began to have widespread support. It was supported by the National Academy of Sciences, the American Medical Association. Mm -hmm. It was funded mm -hmm. by Carnegie and Rockefeller. It was supported even by presidents like Teddy Roosevelt. And mm -hmm. with this idea of eugenics, I mean, you had the notion that the gene pool was being corrupted by the less fit genes of inferior people. And in order to thwart that unfortunate condition, you had to get rid of those people. And so eugenics became a blight on civilization, but it followed, in my perspective at least, naturally from the theory of evolution. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yes, I think you're right. It's not something I adverted to directly in the book, except in the sense that I said that the sociobiology that we associate with the 1970s, with E.O. Wilson and so on, has been arraigned for precisely the kind of divisiveness and racialism and sexism, even Nazism, some people have said or quasi-Nazism, and I wouldn't wish to dissent from that. In fact, in my own family background, I mean, my maternal grandparents were part of the farming community in the 1930s. And, of course, they were used to looking at things from a reductionist animal point of view. And I know that my late mother said that my grandfather, for instance, in the 1930s was quite an admirer of Hitler, and that eugenics seemed to be a perfectly logical way of arranging human affairs. So I think that there is a line, as you say, especially from the descent of man, where Darwin speculates rather more freely than he did in his original Origin of Species about things, especially about human life. I think that there is a straight line from Darwin and to such later developments. The strange thing is, and one of the things I'm looking at at the moment, I'll just put this in parenthesis, is I've begun to be interested in the way that sociobiology has been excoriated so much, and yet Darwinism has remained untouched by many critical voices that you would otherwise think would criticize it more. <laughs> it seems to be a sort of inconsistency since we've already established, I think, that the two are indissolubly linked, intellectually speaking. 
I don't think there's any question about that. I mean, the, I'm thinking about the 20th century mm. in which eugenics was standard fare in high yes. school biology classes. And the classic example, and you actually allude in your book to the 1925 Scopes monkey trial, but yes. you have George William Hunter's textbook, A Civic Biology. I think we ought to note very carefully because this is the infamous biology text at the center of that trial. John mm -hmm. Scopes used that very text to convince impressionable students that humanity has an evolutionary hierarchy, that at present time there exist upon the earth five races or varieties of man. And then the mm. text makes a stirring case for the pseudoscience of eugenics, goes so far as to say that the remedy for those not well born should mm. be extermination. So mm. again, the idea is an idea that had real significance, certainly in America, with this civic biology text. Mm -hmm. Yes, I think, I mean, of course, you can draw a line to the Nazi extermination camps and to the forced sterilization endeavors which took place in the United States earlier in the 20th century as well. Yes, I, I think that these were intellectually coherent from a Darwinian perspective, yes. That was Hank Hanegraaff with author Neil Thomas on Hanegraaff's Hank Unplugged podcast, the second of three parts we'll be sending your way. You're sure to want to buy Thomas's book, Taking Leave of Darwin, a longtime agnostic discovers the case for intelligent design, and you'll find it easily at Amazon.com. Just look up Taking Leave of Darwin. For ID the Future, I'm Tom Gilson. We look forward to having you back next time. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by its Center for Science and Culture.